Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join join us Inside the the Morgue. Welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice. We thought we'd be a little less serious this week with our forensic shows and watch Psych, since I'm sure we could all use a laugh, especially in this line of work. We're watching Psych, Season 6, Episode 14, titled Autopsy Turvy, which is such a good name. Psych revolves around Sean Spencer, a crime consultant for the Santa Barbara Police Department who has heightened observational skills and an impressive memory. This allows him to convince people that he has psychic abilities. An autopsy was performed two nights ago on Bob White, a man that was hit by a bus at 1 a.m. It was a tragic accident, or was it? It's possible that Coroner Strode made a mistake on the examination. He says he never makes mistakes. Lasseter pops in saying that Strode one time left his keys in someone's spleen. Okay, if that ever happened in our morgue where one of the pathologists left their keys or their phone or whatever inside the body... I don't even know how I would react. I'm trying to imagine, like, how... How did he get his key? Something would fit in the spleen <laughs> specifically. You'd have to, like, shove it in Yeah, there. and your spleen's not that big. It's not. Oh, like, one, maybe, like, his one little house key plopped in there. <laughs> <laughs> so, red flag for him. I know it's a joke, but still. You should never leave anything of value near the body just so it doesn't become a biohazard. Vic, getting back to the issue at hand, asks Strode if he remembers a missing earlobe on the bus victim. In walks in the mortician, who was in the process of embalming White when she discovered the inconsistency. Strode and the mortician know each other from forensic school, and they are also briefly lovers. (gasps) The drama. Right away with the drama. Even in, like, a comedy show, they gotta have some drama. Yeah. Grace the mortician says the earlobe was sliced prior to the accident. It was not sliced by a tire because the incision was clean and precise, possibly made by a box cutter. Which is also, that's a lot of detail right there. Yeah. But I mean, she did go to forensic school, so I don't know. That's true. That's true. Strode, referring back to his report, interjects that White's BAC was .31. Wow, that's a super high BAC. That's high. I know in our NCIS episode, we talked about this a little bit, but the legal limit is .08. Yeah. I think the highest that I remember someone that we worked on was like .2 something. Damn. Anyway, he theorizes that White passed out and fell, and that's how the earlobe was sliced. Missing this detail does not mean it was a murder. Sean and Gus say that they believe Strode that the case is just an accident and not a murder. The two of them are going to hit the scene to work it up. They go to the address in the report. Gus is coincidentally standing right where the bus hit White's body. They play out the scene, Gus plays the victim, and lays down in the street. Sean walks back, getting the full picture of the scene, and reads the report that the street lamp directly over the bus was out that night. Gus says the street lamp was probably vandalized, but Sean thinks it's too much of a coincidence that it's only the one street light that was broken, and that it's right above the bus stop that prevented the bus driver from seeing clearly. Whip Chatterley then approaches Gus and Sean and says that he wants to offer his assistance since he's a murder expert. He owns a true crime bookshop, which is directly across the street from the scene of the accident. I wonder how many times this man has introduced himself 
as a murder expert to just people he met on the street. Seriously, he just walks up, he goes, hi, I'm Whip Chatterley, murder expert. He must have, like, rehearsed that in the mirror a million times. I know. <laughs> he seems like the type. He's going through, he's like, what should I call myself? What should my title be? Murder expert. That sounds fine. Got it, that's Nothing the one. Nothing shady about that. <laughs> All three of them go inside the bookstore. Chatterley says the coroner's case reminds him of a case from 1983 that he read about. In this case, an Illinois farmer had seemingly been run over by his own tractor, but it was later discovered that the gear pedals had been adjusted for a tiny person, and it turns out that he was killed with cyanide by a dwarf before he ever even got on the tractor and they never caught the little person responsible. Making a murder look like an accident takes skill, knowledge, and intricate planning. The store owner pulls a secret book on a shelf, opening a hidden room, which has surveillance cameras in and around the store. I have always wanted, like, one of those bookshelves, though. That just makes me think of every Scooby-Doo episode where the killer opens the door and is twisted into a different room. Yep, love Scooby-Doo. Chatterley is extremely fascinated with death and murder, He has read every book about murder since 1850. He explains that with one terrible act, someone can be immortalized forever. He goes on to say that the victim's innards, which is a very weird word choice there, tells the story of their death. Their contents are like a clockwork backwards from the time of death. Back at the morgue, Sean and Gus now think that White was murdered and that his death was not an accident. We see everyone gathered around an autopsy table in the middle of the room with the body on it, covered in a white sheet which is very stereotypical shot here. The room's dark. There's about, what, two office lights on? Yeah, they always gotta be spooky. But they do have a whiteboard in the back with a bunch of notes on it, so I will give a green flag here. I was trying to look at what notes they had. They had some kind of graph. It's like, why do they need a graph? They had a bunch of arrows, and I couldn't oh, read yeah, it. Oh, yeah, the arrows, too. too. But this mistake at autopsy has now cost the investigators 40 hours of lead time in solving the case. Strode makes a comment saying he'll do whatever he can to help, and he'll even stay at the office till 6.15pm if need be. So late. (laughs) He's really putting in the hours. (laughs) He then goes back to the body to look for any signs of head trauma. Grace interjects, saying that since time is of the essence, it would be wise to start the re-examination with the stomach, since it would give a better indication of where the victim has eaten in the last 18 hours. Red flag, it is extremely rare to identify where a victim has eaten. You mainly are able to identify what a victim has eaten if the food in the stomach is not well digested. Also, it seems like they're going back to do a second autopsy on this man, so the stomach should have already been dissected and cut, and the stomach contents should have already been collected. So Yeah, why do they have to go back and cut it if it's already cut? Yeah, unless it wasn't a complete autopsy, but it sounds like it was. Yeah, it sounds like it was. So Vic asks Grace if she's a licensed examiner in the state so she can hire her on to consult the case. So green flag, because this often does happen, and we know of a few cases that have happened in our county that required a second opinion or a consultation. Strode is appalled by Vic's decision to do this. He says that Grace hasn't practiced since she left school and that a mortician is nothing more than a glorified makeup artist. He's throwing some shade. Although makeup artists are very talented. He's throwing shade at makeup That's artists a lot and of morticians. Shade there. He's just insulting everybody. Some info about morticians. A mortuary science degree is a two years associate's degree. I believe it's an associate's. I know it's a t- I'm pretty sure it's a two year degree. It is yeah, it's a two year. And different states have different licensing, but typically one would have to complete an internship or an apprenticeship for about one to three years before becoming officially licensed. There are also several board exams that you need to pass before becoming licensed. And also, just want to throw this out there, this is very different from what Jess and I do. I get asked a lot 
people think I do funeral stuff. We have transport people that come in to pick up the bodies that we release, and all of them are like, oh, so you're also a funeral director? I'm like, no, not. Yeah. I know. I get asked a lot when I tell people what I do. They're like, oh, so like, what's it like to embalm someone? And I was like, I've never done that, so I would not know. So the morgue that we work in, we don't do embalming. We don't have any cremation stuff there. It's strictly just autopsies, mm-hmm. and then we release bodies to the funeral home, and then they do all of that stuff there. Yeah. There are many different careers in death. We're one of them, and mortuary is a different kind. So just a little fun fact for everybody out there, if you consider that fun. So Grace and Sturd begin to argue, and Vic stops them, saying that she's trying to help him, because if this case goes unsolved, he may be out of a job. Grace says that she only wants to help him, so they should slice open this man's stomach and solve a murder. But they already did this at the first autopsy, so the stomach should already have been cut. So again, red flag. Cut to the next scene. They have some of the stomach contents on a spoon. They have a ladle, just like ladling it out and are examining what the eaten food was. Possibly waffle chunks, there's some lemongrass and a bean paste and maybe collard greens, a potato and sugar content of some kind. So we'll give a green flag here because sometimes you can identify what food was in the stomach if it's not well digested. So stomach contents are identifiable to the naked eye if the food was eaten within a two hour period. If the stomach is empty, then the death occurred more than four hours after the victim had eaten. Here's a case to give some perspective inside our line of work. These two men were robbing a coffee place in Oregon, and both wearing dark masks. And while one robber looked away, the barista grabbed his own gun and shot one of the men. The second robber ran away. At autopsy, the medical examiner was examining the stomach contents, and the forensic analyst at the exam paid close attention to the food in the stomach since it wasn't well digested yet. The process of chewing and the combination of the stomach acid makes identifying foods difficult in a deceased individual. But they pulled out chunks of hamburger, cheese, bacon, and half a french fry. The analyst recognized the cut of the french fry since it's a signature fry from the Wendy's restaurant, which I just love that they were able to look at the fry. Every restaurant does have a different cut of fry. Oh, you said this to you the other day, like McDonald's fries are really different from Wendy's fries. Yep, I could tell. I could tell the difference. I'm just wondering if I'd be able to tell if it was, like, partially digested. Yeah, I don't know if I would be that good at identifying it after it had already been in the stomach, but they did find that there was a Wendy's right down the street from the coffee shop. So they got surveillance footage from the restaurant that night, and they found the two suspected robbers eating their meals and trying on their masks before walking out the door. If it weren't for the stomach contents, they may not have caught the second man. We found this case from an atlasobscura.com article, which will be linked in our show notes. This case is a rare example of stomach analysis, but a closer look at stomach contents could lead to more successes in unsolved cases. However, we usually just look at stomach contents to give a vague idea of how long it's been since the victim had their last meal. And we do collect and send out full gastric contents in cases of suicide by ingestion. Your stomach stops working after death, creating a gastronomic time capsule. Digestion varies from person to person, but in some cases, stomach contents can provide a much more accurate timeline of a victim's last hours. Back to the show, Grace asks where the victim would have gone to eat both soul food and Thai food. Gus, who's been watching the exam the whole time with Sean, says White most likely had eaten Afro Thai at Fat Thai Jones, a local restaurant in town. Gus and Sean go to the restaurant, bringing Chatterley along with them. Gus asks one of the workers if he had seen White there two nights ago. The worker recognizes the man from the photo and says that he was a regular and he was here two nights ago around 6 p.m., which was seven hours before his death. White was there alone, and the worker said that he was not drinking because he was allergic to alcohol. The worker offered him plum wine, but he said no, so he gave him plum cake instead. So plum cake actually does contain alcohol-infused dry fruits and nuts, so... 
The worker says that White acted normal that night, but he left some strange carnival tickets behind. Sean calls Strode at the morgue and tells him of this discovery. Strode says that the alcohol in the cake explains the dilation of the blood vessels, but it doesn't explain the 0.31 BAC from the cake alone. Grace wonders if the alcohol was inserted into White's bloodstream. Strode says that it could be possible with a syringe. Wow, genius concept there. What else would you, how else would you inject somebody with a freaking rock? I know. (laughs) How else would you inject? Whoever wrote that line. (laughs) With a rock. I need to talk to them. (laughs) So now Grace and Strode are looking for needle marks in the body. She finds an injection site on White's left foot. So the alcohol was pumped directly into his bloodstream. Chatterley asks if the injection site was between the second and third toe. Sean says yes and asks how he knew that. He said he read something similar in a true crime novel. So I found a little fun fact here. It's not, I don't know if it's so much fun, but more of just a fact. There is something called Morton's neuroma, which is a benign tumor of the nerve. It's an enlargement and or thickening of a nerve in the foot, usually between the second and third toes. And it's often caused by irritation or compression of the nerve which leads to swelling and pain, but you can actually inject alcohol into the neuroma to slowly break down the nerve, reducing the pain, and decreasing the size of the neuroma. And there's like about an 89% success rate of doing that. I think that's a super fun fact. I just thought that was really cool. I think that's super fun. (laughs) The tickets White left at the restaurant aren't carnival tickets, but are tickets to a retro dance where everyone's dressed like it's the 1930s. Sean calls his dad for backup to help interview all the people at the dance. The woman Gus ends up talking to remembers White. She said that he was at the dance two nights ago, and he seems paranoid and went on and on about someone following him. After the dance, they find out that White went to a psychic, which was four hours before his death. The psychic tells them that White was in love with a woman and that she was so beautiful he could watch her all day long. The psychic lied to White, telling him that the feelings were mutual with the woman, but he thought she was telling the truth. He was so happy that he rushed out to go see her. Charlie gets freaked out with the psychic when she pulls the death tarot card and says that death is coming for him and tells the boys that he can no longer work with them. Lassiter and O'Hara go to White's home to investigate further to see if they can find anything about the woman White loved. They find the woman, named Penny, and go to her home and see that she has an audience inside. She's a performance artist, so now it makes sense why Bob would say he was watching her all day long. People pay money to watch Penny live her everyday life. Lassiter tells the audience to leave, and they all just start to clap, thinking it's part of the show. He and O'Hara start to interview Penny while the audience is still watching. O'Hara tells Penny that White is dead, that they believe he was murdered. Penny begins to uncontrollably cry, but it's just an act for the audience. So Lassiter actually makes the audience leave so a proper interview can take place. Penny says that White would come to her show almost every day, but they actually never spoke. But two nights ago, he came in super late, and she said that her show was over for the night, but that he insisted on coming in. He then professed his love for her, which is, that would creep me out too. Me too. Right? Penny threatened to call the cops on him. He left and walked across the street, and she saw from her window a black Impala pulled in front of White, and he got into the car. This happened around midnight, just about an hour before his death. Back at the morgue, the residue test on the victim's fingernails was done, and they find a mixture of pigment fillers in the nail beds. Gus and Sean come in, and Grace brings down a bowl of strawberries for her and Strode. Just, you know, a romantic morgue meal. Red flag, because (laughs) I feel like we shouldn't even have to say this, but eating in a morgue, especially at the feet of a dead body, is a major biohazard. Ew, I'm so dis- I was so disgusted watching that. Right? (laughs) So in our morgue, there's obviously no food or drink allowed past a certain point in the autopsy suite. And mine and Jess's offices are 
technically in the morgue, but we're they're like deemed safe spaces. They're not like in the autopsy room, and I don't wear any gloves or anything like that in my office. It's a safe place for me to drink my coffee after we're done with autopsies, but yeah. Strode is also squeezing a bowl of the victim's intestines next to the bowl of strawberries. It's so bad. It's just so disgusting. So Strode tells the boys about the mixture they found in White's nail beds. It's a mixture of calcium carbonate, titanium oxide, and pigment fillers. These elements are found in acrylic stains and paint. Strode also found muriatic acid, aka a diluted form of hydrochloric acid, which is a Preserving agent found mostly in outside locations. Gus thinks it could possibly be from a mural, so Sean and Gus go to a mural across the street from where Penny lives. Sean theorizes that the killer got out of the Impala, bludgeoned White's head into the mural, and that's how the paint got under his fingernails. It then hits Sean. All these places they've been around town are connected, and he thinks that Chatterley is the killer. Chatterley wanted to get caught so that he would be famous, just like all the killers that he's read about his whole life. He tagged along so that he could make sure Sean and Gus figured out all of his clues. Chatterley sliced White's earlobe, launching the whole case. Sean and the crew go to Chatterley's place, and they find the black Impala with Chatterley in the front seat, unresponsive and dead with a gun in his hands. In his hands, there's a note, and it reads, Thank you, Sean and Gus, for being the sluice I always knew you were, and for helping me find my rightful place in the annals of murder history. As Sean and Gus leave the morgue, Strode is a new man now that his murdered bus accident victim is all sorted out, and Sean sees that he has a new voicemail from Chatterley that he received about an hour before they found his body, and it's of him shooting himself and the sound of a car door being slammed. But the car door slam came after the gunshot, so the two of them go back to his place to investigate further. In the bookstore, they go into the hidden room from earlier with all of the surveillance cameras. Chatterley was watching old surveillance footage, and in the footage, there's a person reading a different book each time. Strode is examining Chatterley's body, and we see the entrance gunshot wound on the left side of the head. Strode finds something weird inside the mouth. There are several torn pieces of paper from crime novel books found inside a metal capsule in the mouth. Grace asks why he's working the case since it's closed, but Strode says it might not be closed after finding this evidence. At the bookstore, Sean and Gus have the five books that each have torn pages. Sean thinks Chatterley was framed after finding this evidence. They think the person on the footage is the real killer. The killer drugged Chatterley the night of White's murder and took his car. However, Sean can see that the killer in the footage has a tell. The killer tugs on their left ear every so often, and so does another person they know, Grace the Mortician. (gasps) What's with all of these pathologists' girlfriends? This is the same as the NCIS episode. Justice for Ducky and justice for Strode. Sean tries to call Strode to tell him that Grace is the killer, but she takes his phone and the paper evidence. She said that he just had to go and ruin everything and that the case was supposed to be closed. All of the evidence pointed to Chatterley doing it, and he even confessed. She pulls a gun out of her purse and aims it at Strode. Chatterley set up Grace by swallowing the capsule with the paper evidence. She says she's been putting makeup on corpses for 25 years, dreaming of the day when she would get the call saying she was just as good as Woody Strode. She applied for every opening in crime pathology with no prevail until she met White. She said that it was more of a mercy killing. She was the one who sliced the earlobe after the autopsy, which started everything because she needed it to be an investigation to get close to Strode. O'Hara and her crew of detectives then rush into the morgue to arrest Grace. Okay, I gotta ask. They said in the beginning that the earlobe was sliced before he died, but then she confessed that she sliced it after, so wouldn't there have been obvious signs of that being post-mortem since we know that dead men don't bleed? (gasps) Yes, dead men don't (laughs) bleed. Good catch. I didn't catch that, but yeah. 
there should have been you should have been able to tell the difference between a postmortem and exactly. an antemortem injury. So you all know that we like to look into true crime cases that relate back to the episodes that we talk about. So this week we will be discussing the murder of Marjorie Nugent at the hands of assistant funeral director and mortician Bernie Tide. We got this information from a Texas Monthly article by true crime journalist legend Skip Hollinsworth titled Midnight in the Garden of East Texas. This case happened in the East Texas town of Carthage in August 1997. Marjorie Nugent was described as Carthage's wealthiest and snootiest widow, and in August of 1997, her body had been found in the bottom of a large freezer in her home. And this is insane enough on its own, but to make the situation even crazier, she had been dead for almost nine months before people started searching for her. That's insane that she's been gone that long. Right? Yeah, it's this whole story is crazy and I get into I get into a decent amount of detail, but I highly recommend reading Skip Hollenworth's article about it cuz it's he got into way more than I did. So, 39-year-old assistant funeral director Bernie Tide confessed to killing her and stealing her money. Tide had gotten close with Mrs. Nugent after supervising her husband's funeral. After her husband's funeral, Tide and Nugent became quote companions and were even seen around town holding hands. But Tide claims that this was just to aid Mrs. Nugent because she was wobbly on her feet because she was much older. Bernie began spending his days off with Nugent, and in 1991, Nugent even ordered officials at the First National Bank to accept checks from her account that had been signed by Bernie so that he could help handle some of her bills. The two of them had even gone on a cruise together. Many people in Carthage obviously started talking about this unusual companionship, and many believed that Marjorie just enjoyed Bernie's company, and Bernie just enjoyed Marjorie's money. She was making between 200000 and 300000 in oil and gas royalty payments alone, whereas Bernie had been behind on his credit card payments and owed the IRS $4,000. In 1996, Bernie went to see his sister for Thanksgiving alone, claiming that Mrs. Nugent decided to spend Thanksgiving with her sister in Ohio. Then when Christmas came, Bernie decorated Mrs. Nugent's home, but whenever people asked where she was, he said she was still in Ohio. He started to change his story in the spring and began telling people that she was in bed because of an illness and did not want any visitors, later saying that she was in a nursing home recovering from a stroke. He even told some people that she was suffering from Alzheimer's. Despite no one seeing Mrs. Nugent, no one seemed too alarmed because Bernie had a reputation for being sweet and innocent around town, and no one believed that he would lie or harm Mrs. Nugent. He was still spending Mrs. Nugent's money on extravagant things like jet skis, as well as paying for the maintenance around Mrs. Nugent's property. However, in July 1997, an unknown Carthage woman called the sheriff's department saying that she was worried something had happened to Mrs. Nugent. However, the sheriff's department didn't seem too concerned and didn't look into the case for nearly a month. At this point, Bernie was in Las Vegas, and when he was found there, he explained that Mrs. Nugent was staying at a hospital in Temple under a fake name because she did not want to be visited or contacted. But deputies did not find anyone matching Mrs. Nugent's description at the hospital. So they contacted Mrs. Nugent's son in Amarillo, and he came to Carthage with his oldest daughter to search the house. That's when they noticed that the deep freezer was taped shut, and they told the sheriff's deputy that this was quite odd. So they opened the freezer to find Mrs. Nugent's body wrapped in a white sheet at the bottom underneath frozen food. So Bernie finally admitted to shooting Mrs. Nugent the previous November, right before Thanksgiving. When asked why he killed her, he claimed that she had become, quote, very hateful and very possessive. 
When talking to his sister on the phone while he was in jail, Bernie said that there were no problems between Mrs. Nugent and him that day. They were just going to run errands and have lunch when he claims that he just suddenly picked up the twenty two rifle and started firing. He says that he then dragged Mrs. Nugent's body to the kitchen, put her in the freezer, and washed the blood out of the garage. He claims that the thought of having to live with her for the rest of her life was something he couldn't take and that he couldn't stand it for another day. So Bernie was originally sentenced to life in prison for this crime. But in 2014, Bernie's attorney learned that he was sexually abused as a child for multiple years by an uncle. His lawyer claimed that Marjorie's alleged abuse of Bernie led him to go into a dissociative state when he shot her. So he was released in 2014 and then resentenced in April 2016. Mrs. Nugent's son and granddaughter both spoke at the sentencing, saying that Mrs. Nugent was a kind woman who was conned by Bernie in order to get her money. And Bernie was resentenced in April of 2016 to 99 years to life. I also think it's so crazy that he did this to an elderly woman. Isn't that crazy? He just wanted to, like, have a friend. I know. I genuinely think that's all it was. I know everybody was sensationalizing and, like, making it scandalous thinking like maybe they were having an affair but i think she just was an older woman who was lonely and wanted someone because her husband had just died so her husband had just died and i think i read in the article too that he helped lay out her medications in the morning so i think she he genuinely just helped her around the house and i think he probably did enjoy just having someone with a lot of money like she probably let him spend some of her money i don't know but not all of it but yeah and there is i saw this too when i was reading about this which i thought was wild there's a movie about it called Bernie starring Jack Black as Bernie. You told I me that. I think it's a dark comedy, which does intrigue me. But at the same time, I also feel bad because like Mrs. Nugent has a family still. And for some, for like a comedy to be made of her murder. Wait, now. So now that you bring it up, I vaguely remember seeing TikToks or like videos somewhere of Jack Black with an elderly woman and like they were on set and he was like Wait, holding you, her and like helping her from into the, the bathtub or something do you remember is it this is a totally different but you're right office. maybe that do you remember the same thing i'm remembering so i remember <laughs> i've never seen the movie bernie and i had never heard of it until i looked into this case but there was oh there's like an, a later in the later season of the it was office, like a tv thing they're watching yes they made a fake movie for the episode of the office where i think that's what i'm thinking andy of. illegally <laughs> downloads it and they're watching he's watching it with jim and pam in the kitchen it's a different movie but i did i did think of that when i was reading this that's definitely what i'm thinking of that's embarrassing (laughs) in that movie though they do have an affair and it is very scandalous maybe it was loosely based off of this maybe i gotta we gotta see what year that episode of the office came out and i think this movie came out in 2011 and they actually they cited the movie bernie in the court case mrs nugent's granddaughter actually said she thought the movie portrayed Bernie into sympathetic of a light and that's why people were lenient with his sentencing at first and like let him be released in 2014 so she was saying the movie wasn't a fair portrayal of her grandmother yeah that was just something I thought was interesting to hear from I mean there's she still has living relatives who are being impacted and I think it's important to talk about this is a crazy case to sit and talk about but it's crazy because the episode revolves around a mortician killing and like 
he was a mortician. But then, like, you also got to think mm-hmm. about the aftermath of everything, yeah. like how the family's affected. Right, the living. It still impacts them. So just a little a little footnote at the end of that. If you're going to go watch that movie, just keep in mind, there are still people who cared about Mrs. Noonjin out in the world. So that is the end of our episode. And we tallied a total of three green flags and four red flags. So in our opinion, Psych does not pass in terms of forensic accuracy. If you enjoy our podcast, share it with friends, family, and coworkers. We'd love to grow our platform here. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod or Twitter at Inside the Morgue and DM us any show suggestions. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.